I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Dustin Kosky. And I'm Ann Kosky. And we love to watch. We love to watch what our neighbors are up to. Dustin? Hey, Adam. Oh, out of breath again. This is the problem. <laughs> I mean, the third one's already a mountain because I don't have to do it every time. And that fourth one is just like another mountain. You know what they say about mountains? There's always another mountain. You go K2 to Everest. So we'll have to cut Adam Kosky out just like the equivalent of budget reasons for a podcast is that it's too much to say. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, auditory budget is a is a real thing. You only have so much breaths in your lungs and then they go away and then you die. Dustin, oh, you're a man of this. Now, that's Adam, that's Adam, why Adam, they're this. killing the guests on the podcast. <laughs> That's why <laughs> opera singers get, have the best podcasts. Yeah, Adam knows this because he's a scientist. <laughs> I'm still going to be doing that. <laughs> Adam brings a strong sense of science and research, and Dustin today brings a strong sense of being wrong on the internet. Uh, thank you, and both attitude for being here. a little bit. <laughs> he started out with an attitude. I, I dived into the call a little bit late, and he was already shitting on Joe Dante. So <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a long episode. So glad you picked. This it's month. not really uh, shit. got his work to have not watched a lot of it. And that's the <laughs> ultimate shit on. Like, I'm not even going to poop been... in this toilet. I'm going to go poop in the woods. We have such a rapport with these with these brothers, too, because they are our most frequent guests. Uh, you are the who is someone that was on Johnny Carson a lot. Jay Leno? Ed? <laughs> sure, Ed. Bob Hope was on Johnny Carson a lot, and the story is that Johnny Carson fucking hated whenever Bob Hope was on. Do you think the Smothers Brothers were on a lot? Because that works better for my metaphor. <laughs> 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 so yeah, the, the Smothers Brothers to our uh, Carson and Ed. Uh, the Kosky <laughs> Brothers are on once again. Um, oh, that's a good one, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, they they are the most frequent guests of the Johnny Carson shows. That's why we use that reference, because it was uh, smart and clever and also accurate. Uh, we <laughs> uh, This is this, if you've never heard our uh, show before, uh, start with a different episode. Uh, but if you've continued on, despite... Uh, despite that warning, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast, and we discuss uh, three to four to five movies that all fit a similar theme. And sometimes, if we remember, we compare and contrast them. Uh, and this week, we are on our second week of Joe Dante Summer, the our second annual uh, July Summer Poll, where the theme was decided by you, the audience. You're a smart audience. Who's a good audience? Because you picked right with Joe Dante Month. Uh, and we have uh, noted uh, Dante Hater, uh, Dustin Kosky, and generally nice person, Adam Kosky. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? <laughs> I'm Adam Kosky. I work as a plant scientist for Eurofins Biodiagnostics. We evaluate seedlings and we're also getting to kind of genome testing or genomic. I, because it's new, I mispronounce it. I also write for Crack.com and a lot of different things, pop culture mostly. I would say some historia, historic curiosities as well. And I'm also the brother of Dustin Kosky, who I pass the mic to. Before you pass the mic, I've never been able to ask you this. It feels like an appropriate time. 
Adam, what's your favorite Guided by Voices song? Just say uh, Heavenly Lights. <sighs> what a disappointing answer. Yeah, I was hoping it'd be I Am a Scientist, but... Okay, <laughs> yeah. I, I missed that reference. I thought you were doing a real far callback to... I'm editing this week. If you want, you can just say I am a scientist and Aaron can react totally like you said. It the I first know. Time. But I already said it. So you could just use the same clip. Yeah. <laughs> problem, yeah. Can you problem? just ed- just do that and then edit in me having little orgasm noises? <laughs> Not big ones. Just just little baby orgasm noises. Like, Hoo-hoo. yeah, a, gen- a gentleman's orgasm. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Dustin. Now I'm a furniture mover. I also work with Adam on sites like Listverse and Top Tens. You do everything under the sun. Okay, fine. I also write fetish comics. <laughs> there, is that what you wanted me to say? But you you also you also write really cool horror fantasy kind of books. And it's, every time I talk to you, you've done a weird, you did a modeling job once we talked about in the last episode. Well, it's, it's all fetish work. It's just some of it is more overt than others. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just from the ankles down. Got it. <laughs> Your noted spawn of a train conductor. <laughs> He's the demon spawn of a hundred train conductors. <laughs> All right. Oh, I'm going to drive this engine. I can't. I think I can't. I think. That's that's you being conceived. Um. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. But yeah, so thank you guys so much for being on. It's time for a new segment. Gather around, children. Uh, we're going to try this out at Dustin's request. Dustin. I believe you have a story to share with the with the class. <laughs> um, so we're all going to sit and we're going to take our shoes off and we're going to sit crisscross applesauce, which is much more politically correct than what we used to call it as a child. And I'm glad they've changed it for my daughter. And you're going to tell us all a little story about racism. Okay. Uh, old amputee sitter? Nope. That wasn't it, Peter. <laughs> look, look it up on how the 80s were terrible when they're like, hey, here's just a fun way to sit for children. Let's let's go. Let's have a racist name associated with it. Uh, fun fact. Uh, I was taught that term by a uh, Indian woman. And by that, I mean Southeast Asian Indian woman. <laughs> Sorry. Continue, Dustin. Teach us all a little bit of something. Please start with Once Upon a Time. That, that'll make the segment all fit together. Oh. Or Once Upon a Slime. Ooh, yeah, or that. Okay, I forgot my story by now. <laughs> <laughs> Too much vamping? Okay, Once Upon a Time, Shell Harris, he's the owner of Top Tens and my boss. Asked Can you be like to a king? Or something to really, really spice this up. King Shell Harris, <laughs> Lord of Top Tens and the Andals and the Five <laughs> Kingdoms, asked his subjects for one of them to write unto him a list about of lies about slavery. We have a very conservative readership for some reason. I don't know where all those guys came from. Maybe like anytime we do something about the Klan or Nazis, they just go nuts over it. I volunteered to do that one. I made it uh, like 10 sort of forms of historical revisionism that have come out in recent years about it. Like, no, the American Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. That's not true. The slave states had insisted on federal laws that would keep slavery going. So that meant that uh, states' rights were not their priority. They had... um, 
listed slavery and the supremacy of the white race in their articles of secession. So yeah, it was about slavery and that sort of thing. And another Yeah, I mean, if you're listening, just a quick interjection, if you're listening to this and you don't think the Civil War was about slavery, please turn off the podcast and go walk into a lake. <laughs> and and kill those teenagers again next year <laughs> just in time for blockbuster season <laughs> keep bringing us the hits okay yeah. and, and, and there's also uh, another one that was on there about how people say well most people who fought for the south didn't own slaves but that but like half of the officers in the southern armies owned slaves a lot of people relied on the slave trade because they were slave catchers or they were overseers, those sorts of professions. So yes, they were dependent on it and whatnot. So I write that up. He makes a video of it, goes to YouTube, a lot of conservatives, and I, it's been a while, I'm pretty sure PragerU saw it and shared it because they saw the title, Lies About Slave, You're Told About Slavery, and they figured, oh, this must be more of our historical revisionism. We pissed off so many people with that, and they were all, <laughs> and, and like, we got thousands of down votes. But the thing about YouTube is it will share videos whether it's, like, dislikes and likes lead to you being featured more because that's more viewer engagement. So that meant that all those guys that were trying to down dislike our video to sort of keep it out of the public eye were just making it more visible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So lots of people who liked our video also saw it as a result of them trying to suppress it (laughs) and them sharing it without actually watching it. So now it's got like 7,000 comments and like 1.4 million views. And That's amazing. Yeah. And so many of them are people who are just pissed off and... Shell Harris told me that he was trying to go through and delete all of the racist comments... That's like trying to stop a flood with a Dixie cup. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what's on there now, that's the sanitized version. Dustin, can you please say at the end? Oh, um, but but like I said, it's now got like, I don't know, 25,000 likes too, along with about 5,000 dislikes. And because a lot of textbooks like now are trying to take out the truth about slavery, like they're trying to downplay it and things like that. I I like to think that we're sort of taking a, a stand against that. Maybe a lot of people in schools are <laughs> hearing the truth about it only through us. The end. Thank you. And uh, and so the king handed down the kingdom to uh, his successor, and they lived woke ever after. Were you <laughs> great story? Uh, I think the whole class was very satisfied. Um, okay. <laughs> So Dustin, for a while you were doing stuff for our show on the on the that YouTube page where you're taking clips. And, oh yeah, and and I went back to like I kind of forgot that we'd even done this at one point, and then I went back and was like looking like oh yeah, some of these got a lot of views, you know, for us and stuff like that. And then I I go to the Dune discussion on homophobia and and like every comment is exactly the type of uh youtube comment you would expect when people are discussing uh a science fiction or nerdy property and the fact that hey it has a lot of homophobia 
in it. Um, and there was I, – I, someone did call Peter Moran Peter Moran, so that was great, but the owned, rest were – Owned. That must have happened so often that, like, he doesn't <clears throat> notice anymore at this point. It happened when I was in kindergarten. Like, I'm hardened to it right now. Like, it's – And now you're back into the bigger kindergarten of YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like being made fun of for your race or your ori- orientation or something where, like – Every little cut, I think of previous cuts. Like, when I got called Peter Moron in, like, first grade or whatever, um, and I probably snapped back in a completely ridiculous way because I was a hot-headed child, um, I was just like, oh, that's, like, the best you can do. Like, I'm a fat kid with shitty teeth, and, like, the best thing you can do is a pawn off my name. Like Adam and I, I think Adam, too, we were all, always called uh, Dustin Coxkey. <laughs> Well, not always. It wasn't and like the... the that, and oh, that was a weird on. baptism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that meant I didn't have to work to come up with my porn alias. <laughs> or finish comic alias. Based on Peter's reaction to that, it was very clever. So, <laughs> they got you good. They're right. I am largely defined by my cock. <laughs> <laughs> and your skis. So, guys, I figure... For once, we don't have a big game. For once, we don't have a big thing in the opening. Nope. I feel like we should generally talk about Joe Dante and our exposure, just to get that kind of out of the way. It's Kotsky. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry, both of you. All right, so Kotsky bros, what did you think about what we said last week on the show? Well, Peter Moron. <laughs> I'm really thought... walking out of here unscathed, it seems. <laughs> no, oh, you might think so now, Aaron Farmstrong. <laughs> That's great. My, not only do I own a farm, uh, it's doing very well. <laughs> I'm farming strong. Uh, Aaron, more like Aaron, like E-R-R-I-N, like you're making errors all the time. Um, to err on the side of... Caution. Well, you know what? To air is human, Peter. <laughs> yeah, more like Aaron. Arms weak. Like to see you lift some big heavy weights. Aaron Armschlong. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Another compliment. Uh, yeah, my, my penis is as big as an arm. <laughs> they call it my Armschlong. <laughs> Which leads into the issue of how we feel about Joe Dante, because... <laughs> Um, I think dick. he makes works that is he, he makes work that is very big, and um, some of it you appreciate the thinking behind it, and you can see sort of the hand of the author in an enjoyable way, more than enjoyable on its own terms. In my in my experience, like they're more fun to think about or to summarize sometimes than they are to watch. So you think they're hypothetical. Uh, hypothetically enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think possible to have ideas that are better than execution. I mean, that's what Southland Tales is. Uh, that's what a lot of that's a lot of like uh, sci-fi movies in general are. Or big, ambitious, sort of like epic works are. Or, like, there's ten pounds of ideas in this five-pound bag. I personally find a lot of Joe Dante stuff. I feel like is scaled properly scaled right for its size and actually feels feels good so i'd be curious just kind of like where the burbs when we get to that fits fits in with uh how you think it it let you down or how it was compromised i feel like i view joe dante as someone who like makes these approachable horror sci-fi genre works 
he's not going for the grim and gritty sort of like Toby Hooper, like let's see how salacious and how wild we can make this experience. Instead, he's going for like, what can I say in the context of a studio genre movie? Like I said last week that I think he feels like he's riffing off of like E.T. and Close Encounters and he decided to put his whole career behind that kind of stuff. Well, and I also think he um, he tends to his, his movies are uh, called Madcap and stuff like that. But I think he tends to like pick one idea like an inner space like people shrink and then he takes that idea and has a bunch of little ideas around that so his movies always feel pretty um full of ideas but rarely are they um with with a, a couple notable exceptions uh, like matinee and gremlin stew which sometimes tend to be his best movies rarely do they feel like they're just flailing without a core idea or without a, a, a budget that can match the the concept it does feel like for the most part he tends to just kind of stick to this is what i'm doing and then i'm gonna i'm not just gonna do one concept of why shrinking and going inside someone would be interesting i'm gonna do 20 versions of why that's interesting but still all around the same the same core idea i will say he like he tries to be subversive but he tries to be fun subversive instead of more like spikely militantly angrily rejecting narratives subversive i don't yeah. know that he's Go quite ahead. intense enough to really be considered subversive i mean he has a take on things but it isn't really underkind too much it isn't really well, shining he, a light on it and saying, look how re- horrible this is, look how bad this is, or anything like that. He's subverting tropes, not like ideas or political stances or things like that. Like, Because I do think he's subversive in the sense that he does want to take political narratives of eras and political era, uh, you know, uh, views of art and sort of... It, and I do think he wants, and I do think that he genuinely wants to change the conversation. I think that his lack of subtlety is something that you can uh, fault him for if that's what you're looking for. But I think he's trying to make pop art on a big scale. So, like, I guess it determines how much uh, of subversiveness you think needs to be under the under the the surface, and how much of it gets to be right on the surface where you can read it. Yeah, I do agree that he would have been a bad choice to direct Malcolm X. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, he goes against he more. I think goes against like narrative expectations or what sort of characters you expect to have in something and tones like. Combining horror and comedy in an unexpected way for gremlins, uh, like his It's a Good Life segment on Twilight Zone with this sort of Looney Tunes approach instead of the relatively restrained, low-budget subtlety of the Twilight Zone original. And throwing in, like, really off-beat cartoon character humans, like the cowboy character in Inner Space. I do think, though, his movies are actually pretty political, and he definitely is trying to satirize uh, certain things, but they tend to be so goofy and big that a lot of times the uh, the political agenda or whatever you want to call it that he's kind of putting forward in his movie almost is too subtle because um, your um, Small Soldiers is a really great example we talked about a little bit last week. Uh, assuming it made that, it's a very long episode. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, when I saw it in theaters, it was like, oh, this is a movie about toys. 
coming to life. And like, and how that's crazy and it has some funny jokes. And, you know, I was, I was what, 16? Like, not, not, not something where, because it's so big and it's so manic and it has all this stuff. And then you watch it again and it's clearly like this, like, anti-nationalism movie. But it's, it gets lost when there's like action figures, uh, claymation fighting. Uh, and there was a lot of that with Matinee. Matinee is this big crazy movie that's also very like anti-war and anti-horrors that like are, put on children um and yet it, and yet it's also very pro outsider voices and art and like it's very much a man standing up for his own genre despite the fact that the genre was being lambasted and pushed aside and would do and would continue to be, do so i mean and maybe this isn't what you mean but i i guess i would if you say yeah joe dante's can be super obvious and manic with his like political agenda that's I think that's true in exactly one case, which is Homecoming, the Masters of Horror episode, which is like overtly heavy handed in its in its what it's trying to and it's like anti-war, anti or pro troops message. It actually and I listened to it, listened to an interview with Joe Dante and like. He was like, yeah, I wanted to hit people in the face with a hammer. I wanted – I think both of his Masters of Horror episodes are pretty obvious in what they're saying, though. I think you uh, could I – don't, I don't know if Screwfly's solution is. I think Screwfly people could watch and be like, that would be scary. You could not miss the point of Homecoming. No. Like the, the point of Homecoming is smashing you in the face with a hammer and Joe Dante says in an interview, he was like, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I, I thought people were getting politically complacent about the war. Very few people were standing up against the war. I needed to hit people in the face. Otherwise, I didn't think they would wake up. That's a perfect choice of words, seeing as how Screw Fi Solution starts with a woman being murdered with a hammer. Yes. <laughs> Screw Fi Solution, though, does. It does act in a way where I think people could have seen it. His stuff lacks a subtlety, but like I think that our show has made clear that like uh, Aaron and I in particular don't value subtlety in a lot of ways like with a political piece of art if subtlety obfuscates your point like I'd rather have something be very obvious and very clear with its political motivations than have something be mealy mouth I don't have anything to add but I thought I did <laughs> did we win did we, did we win the podcast <laughs> <It's>, Woo! <laughs> we did it's, it it's editing. I can I can make whatever <laughs> whatever no, happened Peter this is the best thing that could have happened we won it's the but, ultimate ultimate liberal response to be like well you can still win the war yeah peter <laughs> we're gonna take the battle we're gonna take the war it's okay we'll we'll have a very humane peace accords he'll get a little tract of land and rebuild his democracy let's just all put it on like maybe like a nice game of like a potato sack race maybe that'll end the war do you remember like it, the trailers for small soldiers how yeah they're great it, it acts as if the gi joe surrogate figures are the main characters of the heroes yeah and it really like i i saw it when i was too young to appreciate that level of center because i was just confused and angry when i saw that the heroes were these lovable goofy pacifistic uh gorgons were they called yeah i think it's gorgons but here but here's the thing i didn't i didn't get that all that like because the the soldiers do seem like the heroes for a lot of it so it's almost like i think it's confusing for children because you are watching like a toy movie and I think the G.I. Joes, it's not even really clear what they're portraying. It's like, oh, I guess they're evil. 
Well, yeah, no, I think they're unquestionably evil if they're trying to kill the likable humans. And I, the the, the GI Joes are unquestionably evil. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think like what I'm saying is like as a kid, it's not like I I understood that as like um, a direct reference to like um, America's military actions, <laughs> like it, as as it clearly is. I, I don't think it's that specific. I think it's just saying that every bad guy could use the same tone the same philosophy of isn't it badass that we've got these big arms and we're so strong and we go destroying things indiscriminately just because it can look kind of villainous but if i if i remember correctly they they say a lot of like american army type slogan and catchphrases i thought there was more of a they they do and it it is it is definitely within the realm of the avatar the poke the the, uh, pocahontas the dances with wolves where it's about Somebody who's really into military stuff, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, this little white kid (laughs) It's really into military stuff, as I was when I watched the movie. And I saw the movie because I thought those toys looked badass. And then as the movie goes on, they start to side with the the natives, so to speak. Um, And then by the end of the movie, they're fully on the side of the natives and the military colonialists are laying siege and there's a big battle and and all that. Like, it's clearly supposed to be playing off that sort of imperialism, colonialism thing. But also, there's probably some stuff about consumerism in there because it is about toys. But it's sort of it it fits within that Avatar Dance with Wolves uh, mold, Pocahontas mold. I don't know if it like portrays owning toys is bad since the more of the good guys are other toys but i think it's sort of like a it is i need to watch it again but i think it is sort of it's yeah i'll leave it yeah let's let's all do an episode we're definitely going to do an episode on most dante movies at some point so you guys seem like perfect candidates to come back and talk about it after we've all watched it more more fresh um adam we haven't got a chance to hear yet um are you are you on the team that just won that's peter or are you on the team that just suffered a pretty humiliating defeat? I'll join the losers for familiar reasons. I have to, you know, spend more time with him than Solidarity I do bro. with you two. Yeah! <laughs> oh, just like the just Smothers bump. Brothers! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess... Okay. I don't have... Remember the time they teamed up and took down Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the last episode, right? <laughs> yeah, it was... I do have trouble kind of getting my bearings kind of in a Joe Dante movie as to the tone and what, how I'm supposed to respond to the, what the shifts from kind of a broad, almost cartoonishness to kind of the more middle of the road or kind of more regular comedy drama moments that Uh, that is one of the things about joe dante movies that confuses people and why you know we're not doing gremlins this month we're going to do it at some point um gremlins was a movie that confused people because they brought very young children to it because the way it was marketed because gizmo is so fucking cute they decided to market it as purely a kids movie and the movie is sort of riffing off of that like this is like uh, this is a kids movie but if everything turned sour and turned into a horror movie and so like that like those jarring tones um are kind of part of the deal to keep you awake and keep you engaged but also like yeah you're watching it and you're like wait is this a horror movie is this a comedy like it's a totally fair thing to be thrown off by in a joe dante movie 
because he lo- he loves tossing stuff and he loves having a really silly cutesy joke in the middle of a violent scene and sometimes that really works with me like the howling's humor and horror also gremlins too oh, not too much horror in that one but sometimes no. the gear shifts they have an electric- really connect other times i they have an electric gremlin that thing is horrifying. I, I, it's, yeah. What would you say your favorite Dante? I know you guys said you haven't seen all of them, but what would you guys say your favorite Dante movie is? We know what our, we, this is, this, maybe we should ask this if ever guessed. We know what Joey's is. It's Matinee. Um, also the only one she's seen so far. Um, but she does love it. So it's counted and Matinee is great. So what, what would you guys say your favorite Dante movie is? Uh, mine is his segment of the Twilight Zone movie. It was quite. That's quite a twist. That's a very Twilight Zone esque twist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll stick with uh, my favorite movie is Gremlins two, but I, I'd say that The Howling's a better made movie. That's a really interesting choice, and I really like that choice because yeah. The Howling fucking rules. Yeah, The Howling is. I rem- I saw it after American Werewolf in London. I was surprised, and I lo- I love American Werewolf in London, but I was surprised how much scarier the design was on the on the on the werewolves like there was something about it that did did what most you know kind of horror movies in that age did that were really well produced they kind of like it doesn't have as an amazing transformations but then the wolf design itself was like fucking terrifying and like monstrous except for the last one where she looks like um, I, I could see like a version of Stuart Little where that's what he looks like in close up the final <laughs> werewolf is kind of cute. I haven't seen it recently enough to be able to remember what the final werewolf looks like. But uh, when we do rewatch it for the show, Peter, pipe in some laughs here when you're doing the edit. Or, <laughs> like, <laughs> but like laughs of recognition where I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just pipe that in. This guy gets it. But yeah, do you guys want to talk about the burbs? Burbs. Burbs, burbs, burbs. Burbs is the word. Burbs, burbs, burbs. Oh, dear. Peter, I believe I am alternate tagline uh, for the burps. The burps. The burps. This is, uh, okay, so this movie, real quick, this movie might be a Chicago movie. It there's sounds a- right. It's somewhere, like there's a shot of the earth. It, it begins with a shot of the earth, and it's like satellite photos going in, and it looks like it zooms into northern I thought, Illinois. I thought, it was, I thought it was Indiana. So they zoom into Iowa. But they make specific references to Chicago and to, like, going up to the lakes for the weekend. And also there's Illinois plates on the dump truck and a couple of the cars. So it might be a Chicago suburbs movie. And I was told it was a Chicago suburbs movie, which is, like, a pretty good lie to tell somebody when you're a child. Because, like, most 80s comedies ended up being Chicago suburbs in some regard. Like, even Christmas Story, I think, is Indiana side uh suburbs of, of like chicago or indianapolis so i'm pretty sure it takes place on uh in universal studios hollywood all the marvel movies are set in a green screen studio from 2004 <laughs> to 2012 <laughs> yes. they kicked out the hanks family and it was used uh for the filming of the tv series desperate housewives in which the street was known as wisteria lane so that's some facts about 
where the burbs is set. They also shot um, Leave it to Beaver there, so it's technically Mayfield as well. Yeah, and I they think shot it's... JFK there. Fun fact. <laughs> the grassy knoll is right there. The dog shits on it. <laughs> oh, Queenie. Uh, so yeah, so I guess my alternate tagline is, uh, this cul-de-sac is whack. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. My alternate tagline is, we compromised the vision enough for you. <laughs> mine is, um, Dustin fucking sucks. No, mine is bees to meet you. All right, my new alternate tagline is... I see your tagline and raise your tagline. Peter, Peter lives here because he's a Peter moron. God damn it, Dustin Kofsky. <laughs> okay. All right. I got a tagline. Sometimes when all my dads fight, I get scared and want to watch a scary movie called The Burbs. The Burbs. The Burbs. Tom Hanks. Meg Ryan. That Burbs. Tom Hanks is home for vacation in the middle of summer, we can we can presume. Uh, right before a big holiday weekend, and he is taking vacation from work. He's he's apparently incredibly stressed at work, and he's also incredibly. T- Do you think so he invented there- the staycation? Do you think this is the first staycation <laughs> on film? No, yes, that was everyone a- legally had to leave town whenever they told people they were on vacation before this movie said, "Hey." Why not just chillax? Well, Carrie Fisher seems to think so because she's very confused why someone would take time off work and not go fishing or golfing. Yeah, it's a it is a weird thing because he like seems to have no real hobbies, and they have a lake Rearing. house, which I think speaks. <laughs> they have a lake house, but they don't like going up there because they have like annoying neighbors or like. I think it's more the kid and the man kid don't like going up there. I also think it's a very very accurate portrayal of what being an adult with kids is like which is i don't want to do anything ever (laughs) (laughs) we wouldn't know lucky us (laughs) so uh in the burbs uh tom hanks home for this from this uh this vacation from work maybe imposed by work like he clearly does not want to take this vacation he clearly does not want to be home but either his wife or work forced him to do it so he's just like trying to figure out a way to kill the week and his wife knows from the bat that he off the bat that he's going to go crazy. I'm uh, sorry. Has- uh, I, I, I just occurred to me that it's very possible. So you're right. He has a job that he hates. <laughs> is, it, is it possible that that the end of this movie, the sequel is Joe versus the volcano? Because <laughs> he goes back to the job that he hates, but he suffered a pretty massive head trauma. And so he's acting a little funny. <laughs> he was blown and up. When he goes and gets <laughs> x-rayed, that's when they find the, um, oh shit, what do they find? The shade or? It's like cloud. Cloud, There's yeah. a cloud. The brain it. cloud. That's right. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm going to say, and this came out, and it came out uh, the year after The Burbs. So going forward canonically, uh, Joe versus the Volcano is a direct sequel that takes place the next day after well, The he Burbs. Did- I think the brain injury can really explain a lot of this. Like, instead of a wizard did it, the the, the fact that he was in an explosion did it. <laughs> <laughs> He's stuck at home. He's stuck at home, and he has these neighbors, but they're not quite friends. They're just neighbors, um, and they keep intruding into his life. And he has a brand new neighbor moved in right next door, 
moved into this like creaky dilapidated old house that was formerly occupied by an old couple and they're creepy they uh they look off they have european accents like but not the cute like you know like when an italian man talks to you and you're like oh i think i'm in love like that kind of accent more of like they like like what are you doing in my house? Like that kind of thing. Very deep, uh, very Eastern European accents. Yes, yeah, they're yes. all from, they're all extras from Herzog's Nosferatu movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're all, they're all very weird. Their house is like unwelcoming. They're not being specifically welcoming or unwelcoming. Like the, the, the deck collapses in when they step on it. There's bees on their deck. Like their house just looks creepy. They give creepy stares out of the house. Like, it's not that they're unwelcoming. It's that like it, I think I assumed what happened was just the old couple that owned it before sort of let it go to pot because they were a little too feeble to maintain it, and the Clopex just didn't care how their house looked. Yes, I, think, I don't I know though because theory. the all the neighbors do seem to be like they really let that house go to shit. It's like well, you can't decay wood fast. That fast. Like, <laughs> like, like, even like, if you don't, I don't know, sweep your deck, it's not going to turn 800 years old over a month. Kind of does feel like inside of this sunny California neighborhood, this dilapidated house was just like plugged in. I know what's going on. All right. At night, they run this, the Clopex run this, it sounds like a machine in their basement that produces like these strange colored lights and glows really brightly and whatnot. So clearly what's happening is it's a color out of space situation where there's some alien presence Ooh. that is like sucking all the life out of And making everything gray and lifeless. <laughs> yes. I'm fine with that. Yes. I thought it was just I, like when Scar takes over Pride Rock and he <laughs> somehow makes the weather in plants die. Which is pretty From the Lanking. Yeah, either that or Penny or the Clopex are Pennywise collectively. Yeah, they're a, they're a cosmic horror entity. But but yeah, anyway, so the neighbors all get really suspicious, except for the, the women are mostly not. Um, so it's uh, Ray, who's played by Tom Hanks, the main character. Uh, Art, who's played, uh, and then the other neighbor, Art, uh, played by uh, uh, Rick Ducommon. The third neighbor uh, play is Rumsfeld. Um, Rumsfeld is like an ex-military guy, and it's played by Bruce Dern. Um, and Bruce Dern has a very, very pretty wife that's being ogled by uh, the neighbor kid who's painting his house while his parents are out of town. Funny enough, that's the Munster's house, but they hide it in the movie because they thought it would be very distracting to audiences. They were correct. O- audiences are always on the lookout for the Munster's house. <laughs> <laughs> they can't help it. If they, if they see it. it, it's like, yeah, it's like hitting the jackpot. Their brain explodes. So, yeah. I mean, really Really, you should have the clopex. You should have the clopex living in the monster house. It is weird that they chose to do that, but it's clear why they wanted to hide the fact that there was a monster's house. I think they couldn't destroy and dilapidate the house enough if it was the monster's house. Like they wanted to, maybe someone wanted to maintain it. I forget why they didn't. They didn't dilapidate that old set. Whatever. Yeah, all monsty heads. Um, so monsties, as they call them. You know, it's their favorite type of cheese. Munster. Gouda, because they uh, like a Gouda show. <laughs> okay. Colby Jack, because it's spicy. <laughs> For some reason, Art sort of seems to plant the idea in everybody's heads that the Clopex are up to something because he ha- cause he remembered some urban legend about a murderous ice cream salesman named Skip. 
Yeah, and Skip murdered his whole family with an ice pick, and the neighbors were smelling the dead bodies for weeks, but were ignoring it because it's the suburbs and you're polite. And even like, you know, ins- health inspectors came out to the house and they thought it was septic or whatever, but it turned out it was a murderer. And so they, he, they took this old thing that's probably an urban legend because Skip basically says that it happened when he was eight. So, you know, rife with bullshit. It's also and- when he's describing like how much safer things used to be in his <laughs> world. Yes, there's, there's a, a serial killer. Like, if you don't know Joe Dante's political agenda in this, that's a big tip of the hat. That like yeah, this that- idea of this fan um, of the safe fifties involves a serial killer that no one, uh, no one even like adds to the list of why maybe it wasn't safe that there was a murderer serving ice cream to your kid roaming free for weeks you're right that's the first sign of what the movie's trying to do here that like maybe these aren't like rightfully suspicious neighbors maybe these are just like they're they're going a little paranoid because they have too much free time in the hot summer and so they start investigating them um a neighbor goes missing. They investigate Walter's disappearance and uh, they think maybe the Klopex took him. So then they are determined to get inside the Klopex house and find where Walter's corpse is. They go over for they, they muster all their energy, go over there, have like a, a very awkward like tea time with the Klopex and we meet them. Uh, the oldest one is a, a doctor sort of implied. He's like an ex Nazi doctor. Then the uh, the the other one uh, is played by Brother Theodore, and he's just sort of like a grumbling, sort of like ogre-like kind of guy, kind of short. He keeps his head low. He keeps his, his lower lip out, like very like just he doesn't know how to not grimace. And then they have like a son or a youngest brother um, who's like a. It, it's too old. Dr. Frankenstein's and they have a quote unquote hick living with them. Yes. For some reason. He's like a he's like a strange boy that that's sort of like their their servant or their familiar or something. Like he gets He has a big too. underbite and that kind of thing. Yeah, he sort of drives the car and takes the trash out, that kind of thing. Um and then after the tea party thing goes poorly because they are dicks to the family. They get the old guys to pay, which they, they think the I guess is pay, yes, which they think proves that the, that he was abducted and that was evidence left behind. And then after that Tom Hanks is like Oh no, they think he's dead. Yeah, that's why they're willing to make the leap to break into his house. Yes. Well, I think the one Ard was gung ho for bringing in. Well, that's why Ray is willing. To oh, he got like you. Voice, who's the, the closest the thing to a voice of reason? Because they're kind of like kids, right? Like nobody's <laughs> gonna go out. They're, they're, nobody's going to go out on their own. They kind of need the group think to muster up the energy to invade and trespass on these people's property. Even if they found something, I'd imagine in court that would be like grounds for a dismissal or something i'll get to that in a second because it is kind of funny how in the end i was like well maybe oh, yeah, that yeah. would hold up but anyways so uh they start digging in their yard when the clopex are out of town they and they get in the the basement and they're digging and digging and they they think they found it they think they found it and then they uh crack a gas, a gas a, line a gas line and it causes a explosion and art was in there sorry uh, and ray was inside the house when the explosion goes off and the cops show up because the clopex are returning home and they saw someone was fucking with their house and the cops are <laughs> well, there, well you can't the- miss the house blowing up hey the is something the out of place I know I didn't leave my magazine near the fire. 
And then the cops happen to be there when the explosion goes off, right? So the cops are there to basically, like, arrest... Well, they bring on the cops over because they have, like, noticed previous suspicious stuff, don't they? Yeah. Because they're following them. Yeah, that's what yeah. I said, right? Oh, yeah, maybe. Maybe I tuned yeah. in. Oh, yeah. I maybe you just had to listen. Um, <laughs> we, we love to watch. We don't love to listen. But the... <laughs> Gross. <laughs> listening. So, the, so Ray wa- wanders out of the house. He survived the explosive blast and... He should not have. He should not have, but it's a cartoony movie, so he survives. Okay, and um, he has just—he's at a breakthrough. Not only is he's just like a dazed and confused man, but like people are asking him about what he found inside, and he's just like so stunned by the fact that not only did they not find it, like he finally knows that they're innocent, and so he like confronts the other two neighbors, and he like calls them idiots, and he's like, "We just fucked with this family for no fucking reason," which is true. <laughs> he fucked with them just because they were weird, and then. Um, he resigns himself to go to prison and he's like, well, I'm going to get in the ambulance and he puts himself in the ambulance. <laughs> One of my favorite gags in the movie. Oh, the and best gag. Yeah, yes. that's a great physical comedy by Tom Hanks. Yeah. Impro- yeah, completely improvised. And there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that's improvised in here. We'll get to it, but it's because this movie was shot during a writer's strike. So, Tom Hanks uh, is in the ambulance and then all of a sudden, the eldest Klopak shows his face and basically confesses to all the murders and but he says like well you found my evidence right you found my evidence right and tom hanks is like no hey i'm really sorry i blew up your house like i'll pay for this and he, and then uh the eldest clopac uh tries to kill him while the youngest one is driving the car and the youngest one crashes the car the ambulance and uh they fall out they wrestle and then everyone is like surrounding ray like no, no, we thought you finally, like, came to terms with what you did. Um, and then Corey Feldman saves the day by pointing out that in the Klopak trunk of the car that the, the middleest Klopak was trying to get rid of, and the trunk of the car is just filled with bones, and the Klopaks actually were murderers the whole time. Human um, bones. Yeah, I wish it's bones. Yeah, there's, there's, they're clearly, like, skulls and Human stuff skulls. in there, a lot of shit. Uh, it's implied that they killed, like, the garbage men. It's implied they killed a bunch of people. Yeah, okay. it's essentially a movie about a bunch of white, well-off people terrorizing uh, a group of immigrants that move into the neighborhood. Uh, but it turns out that the immigrants are actually evil as they suspected. So <laughs> white people are right to terrorize them. I, so, my, so we got to get in that right away because one of my favorite things about that movie is that – one of my favorite things about the movie is that like all of their suspicions, all of their snooping around – leads to pretty much nothing except for that they piss the Klopeks off enough that they finally reveal themselves. Like, they didn't find the evidence. They didn't find anything. And, they're, and they and they were wrong for going after yeah. them just because they... Uh, I don't know. I, I think the bear... I think the cloak digging at night. I think there was... I, I'm not The femur, too. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> there was enough suspicion, I think, to... So, I... I, I that's... That is what joke. What I said, this movie is absolutely not um, about like immigrants moving into a into a suburban neighborhood. This movie is using uh, the fact that uh, they are Germans to increase suspicion because Germans, Germans are heavily associated, yeah, heavily associated with Nazis. Which uh, uh, this you know fun fact for all you eighties kids uh, that used to be a bad thing, like hundred percent of the time. So. Uh, um, uh, for some reason it was still British for a long time too yeah we never let that one go no fuck those guys 
Uh, no. <laughs> the original version, I think, actually was about pointing fingers at paranoid suburbanites and say it is it is for sure about calling suburbanites out for being paranoid and that cul-de-sacs make people weird because they they make people form into these little tight communities where they think that they need to like defend the community and like i think joe dante for sure was looking at like the straits in the suburbs and i'm sure at this point joe dante was like raising his kids in the suburbs uh, of la and was like these some of these people around me are fucking insane like the weird rituals they have like all that stuff he's clearly making fun of the suburban rituals i think that's but he, true he's, but he's not the, the point of the movie is 100 percent not xenophobia can be justified <laughs> no and and you know one one of the things that is um that is kind of true of like the suburbanites in real life is that like there's a general suspicion when anyone moves into the neighborhood. It's not. It's not necessarily. And you know, Germans are white people. Um, oh my! That is, that is that does make the movie a lot less icky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they. It, but it is just kind of a okay. Well, we're gonna have to deal with these people. Our kids are gonna run into these people. Like, so everyone is kind of eyed through the lens of suspicion because it's like someone. It's it's a weird way of anyone moving in uh, is kind of invading your perfect suburban uh you know uh, deck of chairs yeah perfect that's a phrase people use a perfect deck of chairs that they have uh <laughs> sure, they have, got it they have said yeah uh that those are the most perfect things uh, on on planet earth um although i actually want to get into the the fact that i don't know if that's true like i live in the suburbs kind of i mean uh, but I, definitely in the suburbs, and I've lived oh, in. Oh, Aaron's gonna not all suburbs us. No, <laughs> I, no, I'm not gonna not all suburbs. Like, and then my family had lived in various, like you know, every place in Bismarck, North Dakota, the suburbs. Basically, I've never had a. Uh, so the I know what situation in this movie happened to you. <laughs> no, no, that's happened. Uh, exactly, I've blown up a couple houses. Uh, just a couple. Due to, just due to my investigations, uh, but I. The difference is, is that I don't know that many people that like are friends with their neighbors or like have relationships with their neighbors or know their neighbors that well. Like even now, like that that part of it is it feels a lot like a Hollywood like fantasy that they propagated in like sitcoms and movies because it made sense for the neighbor next door to be part of whatever action or something. But like, I I don't know this kind of like the way you have like almost a close knit. Everyone knows everything about everyone in these like suburban communities. In my experience, that has never really been true. And it hasn't been true. Just not just for me and my family and my parents, but like, of like other people, I I know. What's the makeup of your neighborhood? Like in terms of age, uh, just so age. not race or anything, just age. Um, I I guess I don't really know because I don't know my neighbors very well. <laughs> well I think it, I, so. I guess that that helps prove my point. I think it might be a generational thing. I see. I mean, people walk by because we live next across the street from a park. So I don't know. I see. I see old ones. I see young ones. I mean, I don't know where they live in relation to our house, but yeah, there's there's. There's all shapes and sizes. Because um, my parents have talked about their suburbs in a similar way to this, where everybody knew everybody. You'd play at your neighbor's houses all the time. Everybody, everybody would talk. Like, and I also grew up in a neighborhood that at one point was very much like this neighborhood. Like, it was very gossipy. There were neighborhood parties. They sent around a directory, so you knew all the um, 
Huh. The the names of the people in your neighborhood as well as their numbers. Did you did you get to learn the people that you meet when you're walking down the street each day? Yeah, yeah. I did get to meet all the people that I walk down the street when I'm walking street with the feet. Okay, just checking. Meet. I mean, you're talking about the people. But yeah, I think that that's, I think that you're right, Aaron. <laughs> Hold on, sorry, sorry, Dustin. Screensaver went on. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do the Hill Street Blues theme, you know, where she's walking, where that one police officer is walking around. How'd you not get that reference? Because <laughs> yeah. I've never seen an episode of Hill Street Blues. I was referring to the Sesame Street song, People in Your Neighborhood. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, Aaron, I think I think it might be a generational thing. I think that people in our, from our generation that live in the suburbs live in the suburbs because they wanted a house and they wanted to live near a city. Um, and there can be communities like this. But I think that generationally people would – uh, of, a, of an older generation or even, yeah, when I was younger, I lived in a neighborhood that was sort of like this. I didn't live on a cul-de-sac. I'm moving to a cul-de-sac, so I guess I'll be able to report back yes, here in a couple yes. months. So we'll read you the verbs in two months. Uh, <laughs> oh, never her. mind. I go spying with my friend, with my neighbors all the time <laughs> and yes. ignore my ch- children. Dustin, Adam, I'm not sure like what kind of like makeup the area you're from is, but like, is it our are, are neighborhoods laid out like this? Like, do you see any of yourself or your friends or anything in this kind of setting? We, we definitely were on good terms with our neighbors on one side, uh, facing the street on our right side. On the left side, it would change uh, often because we live in a college town. So that house was usually rented out by students. So uh, my mom would absolutely love our right, uh, right side next door neighbors and uh, was often suspicious of our left side next door neighbors. Like one time she just saw their – You got like a Dr. Had, Seuss book going here. That, <laughs> she's on the right side. We're, <laughs> we're tight. You're the a good neighbor. A goofus well, uh, and a gallant uh, neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, one time uh, the, the house on the left side, side of our <laughs> – um, she saw that in their recycling, they had a bunch of detergent bottles and uh, things like that. And she had kind of heard what meth labs were. Wasn't quite sure. So she thought that was evidence they had a meth lab next door. <laughs> <laughs> and so that scene where they're rooting through the garbage. Oh, that God. Was, <laughs> she has the right to know, Dustin. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have a fun story I totally forgot. So in high school, we were drinking in my parents' basement. We took the bag of empties to the park, put it on top of the garbage can because the garbage can was full. I put it on top of the garbage can, fully rested and tightened. Um, A few days later, uh, a woman, presumably a half raccoon woman, she tore through the, the garbage, found a receipt that was in the trash that had my dad's loyalty number like i used a, my parents loyalty card at jewel to get booze <laughs> and so the the receipt said like whatever 10 bottles of wine or whatever the fuck we were drinking and then at the bottom it had like loyalty number and had my dad's name on it and then she put the bag in a she put the receipt in a plastic bag and then mailed it to my house anonymously saying i think one of your children has been drinking in the neighborhood <laughs> Oh my! I, I, I at least thought she was gonna steal the number. Yeah, I thought yeah. this was early identity theft. Yeah, you were saying she really, she really needs to know that loyalty can't be stolen. It needs to be 
But like, how fucking weird is that? Like, some woman went through a bag of empties to find evidence of us fucking around. Like, that's, that's a that's a pretty good burby kind of story, right? Like, yeah. Well, my position on Boo is is she was totally in the right. <laughs> I also probably should not have been drinking at sixteen, but fascistic uh, alcoholic prohibition state. <laughs> yeah, cr- decriminalize marijuana, recriminalize booze, and Dustin ha- is happy. <laughs> uh, hold on, I just finished pouring myself another drink, um, <laughs> and we never found out who she was. Like, like cowardice on every level, and it's it's just that sort of stuff that leads to like the, the, that cynicism about the suburbs that people like Joe Dante feel, or like Joe Dante very well might have been the the weirdo in his neighborhood. There is something weird about how neighborhoods are, it's supposed to be you're moving away from the city or moving away from an apartment to kind of get your own space and kind of get your own, something you can actually like kind of cut out as your own. It's just, it's just cheaper. That's literally the only motivation for us. Yeah, it depends on, <laughs> depends on where on where you're living. Like in Chicago, it would have been me saving a lot of money as well. What, what you need to do is you need to have like signs when you move into a neighborhood like this that are like, I don't want to participate in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just pretend like this is an abandoned lot. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 there is a there is a weird dynamic to neighborhoods because people are cutting out their own space and they expect that sort of privacy, but then you open up those doors when you feel comfortable opening up those doors, right? That's why people will go their whole freshman year in the dorm not meeting their next door neighbor because like some people just like cut everyone out and the w- easy way to tell is that the front door is closed in the dorm but in a house like the front door is always closed like so obviously like you have to go and knock you have to walk onto someone's land and knock which happens in this movie and like sort of invade their privacy to ask if they want it to engage with you like you almost have to be like a solicitor of engagement it's a very it's a very strange strange system because like you also are not living like out in bumfuck so like you do you do want some of the benefits of a neighborhood yeah it's understood i i think the the closest thing that came to a justification for being mad at the clopex although this never comes up is having a really run down house like that is going to drive down your property values i'd imagine for most of the rest of the neighborhood and maybe rats could be living in in it and that kind of thing and bees what well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, rats are in it. We see, we see <laughs> that their basement has a few rats in it. Oh, make sure you be cool in this neighborhood. <laughs> we really got into the the burbsy dynamic of it. Um, well, it's kind of a movie. Yeah, yeah. Dustin, Adam, what do you make of this thing? Because this is something that I think clearly Aaron and I are pretty positive on. But like, what do you what do you make of this thing? I tend to like movies um, less as the sum of their parts than. I judge them by how high their highs are and how low their lows are. And there's a few scenes in this movie that I think are h- hilarious. And I don't think any of the acting is particularly bad in it. I think everybody's uh, pretty good and whatnot. The ending makes me dislike this movie. Hmm. So you want the, actually, they were paranoid the whole time Tom Hanks dies. I know that's probably going to feel like, at, at this point, that feels like a trite message to send that... Yeah, the Klopeks are innocent. Everybody's just being overly suspicious and 
all that. I, so, I, I think maybe even by Twilight Zone that feels dated, but that is the right ending because otherwise this movie is directly in the way that matters if you're that kind of person. It's rewarding paranoia. The way that I view it, and especially in the current political context, like this is a this is an interesting movie to watch because it is easy to see it as like a xenophobia tale. This is a this is a bottle movie. The movie never leaves the neighborhood. Cars come in and out of the neighborhood. Like it's not lifeboat, but cars can come in and out of it, characters come in and out. The main characters stay in the neighborhood the whole time. So it's very easy to see it as is about xenophobia. I think that the movie though saves itself from being too icky on that front by having they're they are terrible detectives through and through like the scene where they're trying to break into the Klopak's house with a credit card and it just breaks and then eventually Dom Hanks just gets frustrated and breaks open a window like they're not they're not good detectives the whole movie is about them being shitty detectives particularly uh Rumsfeld is like views himself as this like big badass military guy He's just a goon. He's a military idolizing goon who never worked through his feelings for Vietnam. So in a so it's a sort of tragic in a way. But on the other hand, he's taking out his like need for violence. Like he's trying to find a window for it. It is funny that this is the second movie in a row we've done with the Kosky brothers with like a a right wing nut job who's secretly lovable. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is weird, though. So my point is that if they were going to remake this to make it for modern times, they would not have this ending. This ending works great in a Twilight Zone kind of context, I think, like like Dustin kind of said, um, as a horror kind of ending. And I do think that it is forgivable that they are actually killers in the end because like they're such shitty detectives. The group is such shitty detectives that they never find any of the evidence and they were always being crazy it's just that at the end the clopex show their true face thinking that like well these guys have been on to us for a while like it's only the suspicion that made them and i think if, if you're gonna make this movie you would have rumsfeld secretly be the serial killer and sort of subvert it like the guy that's like very gung-ho about this investigatory mission is actually a you know a suburban killer there was a thing on TV tropes where they where they suggested shouldn't it be Ricky who's uh, is it Rick R- Ricky something yeah it, Cor- Feldman's Corey character. Feldman's character oh Corey Feldman yeah yeah he's like an out and out sociopath who's like abused that so he's a, so he's bad a things teenager, are happening is what you're saying. <laughs> I don't think every teenager is like that. I mean, uh, yeah, I it's a fun stereotype, but yeah. well, I wasn't. <laughs> he loves to. He Dustin loves, was he a learned man when he was fourteen. <laughs> and no time well, for shenanigans. I, was, I had to hate. Well, problem was that I was in Boy Scouts, and I had to. So at that age, I was sort of put in charge of a few of those kids, and that made me fucking hate that sort of attitude. Did you, did you listen to our heavyweights young. episode? Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> Did you? I'm just out of curiosity, say, would you no, no, have no. reported people at Boy Scout camp who were listening to music when they weren't supposed to? Absolutely be? not. You would have been my favorite people. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you would not be going around raising trouble. Oh, just, if, that was if our trouble, man. Boy, if the Boy Scouts had just been quiet and kept to themselves, perfect. So I think yeah. you're uh, I think you're missing a little bit of what this movie is, Dustin. If you if not to not to sound uh, patronizing, but the reason why I really like this movie and I, I I hadn't seen it in its entirety before is that Joe Dante made made a lot of movies, and this is very much one of those movies 
Um, and it was also just a popular 80s like subgenre where it's like kids in this this normal neighborhood find adventure or horror or something else, right? That's what his movie Explorers is about. It's what stuff like Goonies is about. There are tons of entries in that subgenre. At the end of all of those movies, everyone thinks they're crazy and stupid, and then they get in a lot of trouble, and at the end, they're right. They're either right about, yep, it's a space alien, we get to go to space, yep, there's treasure, yep, those people are actually murderers. And this is 100% one of those, like, 80s kid adventure movies, except the children are adults, and the kids in the movie could not care less about everything the adults are doing. And... That's what I really like about this movie, that it his son is totally disinterested in the mystery and thinks his dad's a lunatic. And they are just like children. And that works better because then they can have like these face-to-face confrontations where they're still acting like ch- children um, because they're technically adults and they own the house. But like that starts out like a very subtle gag that, hey, they're kind of acting like children going on these mysteries and then becomes more and more obvious to the point that like eventually, you know, Carrie Fisher almost becomes um, Tom Hanks's mom is like, no, you can't go and play with your friends right now. He's going to be good and stuff like that. And I can see why, like in the age of like, uh, you know, man babies and stuff like that. It may it may seem like less, oh, haha, the wife has to be the adult and he's a child. But, like, I think – and I think that would be annoying in a lot of movies, just that kind of concept and kind of pep, uh, uh, perpetrating that stereotype that, like, you know – the men in these relationships are like the fun ones and the and the uh, women are the the scolds but i think viewed through the prism of like what joe dante does is like and what genre he's kind of aping is i i think he's doing an 80s fantasy uh suburban kids find adventure story but doing it with with adults that are behaving across the board like children they don't have jobs to go through they're on summer vacation like so that's why the kind of serious gravity about I wish Tom Hanks would have died and like it kind of sucks from the moral of like the suburbanites that they tend they, – they ended up uh, actually being murderers doesn't like I – don't, I don't think those criticisms are necessarily fair for this movie specifically because that's not what it's – like no – none of these fucking kid movies end with one of the kids dying and there's no actual treasure. But that's exactly what movie that – this is trying to be um and i think it works i think that added level of realizing these adults are the children in a joe dante type movie is um an added level of uh hilarity that ma- that ca- makes this movie really rise above a lot of um a lot of other like 80 suburban comedies and aaron if you don't mind i can throw in real quick when they when you said they're acting like children that is firmly in the movie so like yes yeah yeah, yes, they're not like – they're not behaving like children. They are – they, they are children. They might as well be like uh, Tom Hanks and Big. Yes. Um, that's, that is the joke, that they are so there, literally there's, children. There's, there's entire scenes where like 
Um, They're in their clubhouses. Like I I just said, Rumsfeld is eating uh, his animal crackers on the roof and sipping his juice. And there's a scene where um, after Tom Hanks has one particular freak out and Carrie Fisher, uh, Carol, is keeping him inside. Which, side note, Carrie Fisher, I think, is so much better in comedies like this and the Blues Brothers than she is as Princess Leia. Like, I love her so much more when she gets to be funny because she's like... She's very funny. She's yeah. one of the funniest like comedian writers of that like spanned multi decades and like she's so fucking funny on Thirty Rock like all the funniest jokes on Star Wars have been told by Carrie Fisher. Yes. <laughs> like w- the one where she says she th- there was this one where she gave like a talk and she said everybody asks me did you know Star Wars was going to be a hit and I say yes only one person didn't know. George. <laughs> and we didn't tell him because we wanted to see what it looked like when he changed facial expression. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, just, so that, oh, that's sorry, a, that, sorry, that's an absolutely great line. But when, when, I just want to underline, when they mean children, if you had cast 10 year olds in, in all these roles that the, the quote unquote adults play, you wouldn't have to change a fucking line of dialogue. Like maybe school for work or like a paper route for something. And then that's it. Everything else matches up the exact same. And I think that's the genius of this movie. They even have like kid body types. Like yeah. Rob's Rubsfeld is this like tall, lanky one, like this kid who had a growth spurt early. And who's Art dressing in like camouflage all day. <laughs> like that is such Art, a ten year old thing. Art's the heavy one. Yeah. yeah, when I was when I was like eight or when I was like eight or ten, like I loved military shit like this. Uh weirdly enough, small soldiers helped get me out of that phase. But we'll, we can talk about that in another That's episode. not weird. That's that's I feel like Small soldiers doing what it's supposed to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And even Corey Feldman works in that context because he's a teenager who kind of talks to the kids and is, like, cheering them on. Like, look at these trouble these kids are getting up to. Like, everything works. And the joke is just, okay, yeah, no, they're kids on a kid adventure in suburbia. Um, what if we What if we cast adults? Like and that's and that's the joke. So that joke doesn't work if Tom Hanks dies at the end of the movie. Well, I didn't mean I didn't mean he needed to die. I just don't like the fact that the Klopex are revealed to be. But that's all of murderers. Them, right? That's all like the that that genre. You can still have Tom Hanks walk out alive. That's I I thought that was hilarious the first time. But I, I saw that Hanks somehow survived this explosion that destroyed I'm, the house. I mean, he's not doing great, but um, <laughs> he's, he's wily coyote now. Explosion, right? Like, yeah. Yes. But but all of those all of these movies end with. You know, because at the end, they're like, they're literally having the sit down that you would find in these movies. Like, you guys are in so much trouble. <laughs> like, that is the kind they're like sitting there like. And then, you know, Tom Hanks goes and pouts in his room, knowing him by throwing the thing in the ambulance. And then they turn out to be right. That's that is the trope of the movies that they're doing here. It doesn't work if it, they're not right, because then it's not. Then I don't know what this – I honestly – you're right. Then it's a darker, like, Twilight Zone movie, but it's not the movie we just watched for the last hour and 40 minutes. Like, you'd have to change way more than just the ending. We already have the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Like, we already have that. Like, this is a this is playing within an 80s context of, of these children uh, exploring this sort of weird situation, and they – Bumblefuck their way into a victory. You, we've mentioned uh, the monsters who do on Maple Street. I think part of, I mean, they had to change the ending to this of this movie from uh, as a result of test screenings. 
I think, and so it originally had the ending that I said I would have preferred where it turns out the Klopeks are innocent. You could do everything else the same, just throw that little twist in there. But I think he actually was going for the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street because there's a character who looks, there's a character in the original Monsters Are Due on Maple Street episode who looks almost exactly like Art. And I think that's a conscious imitation. And there's another one who looks like Rumsfeld. And there's actually uh, one who looks kind of like Hank's. I don't know if that was, like, conscious casting, but, I, I mean, you could, like, do one-to-one character comparisons. But think about it this way. This is someone who directed their own Twilight Zone episodes. Right. Of the, of the return and directed the movie. And what is more Twilight Zone than saying, you guys know these episodes. These are some of the most famous episodes. Like, even if you don't, like, The Monsters Do on Maple Street is probably one of the Twilight Zone episodes that if you need to watch, like, ten of them, you'd watch that, right? Yes, agreed. I think by subverting that, he's actually saying like, even if he, you know, it could be a subconscious, like you said, it could very well be subconscious. This is a guy who fucking loves Twilight Zone, um, but it could also be him saying, "Oh, you expect them to just be nuts in the end." I'm very clearly telegraphing that these guys are just fucking nuts. Um, what if I went the other direction and sort of leaned into more of the like? The, they bumblefucked into their way into this mystery. And, and I, so I think it works. It works as a comedy and it works as it works within the context of um, having a fun Twilight Zone horror surprise. It's just that it doesn't necessarily land as a political item that can work in 2018 in the current moment that we're watching it. <laughs> Adam, what's, what, what are your thoughts on all this? You convinced me that's what Dante was going for was kind of a outsized child adventure with it. My take on it was more of kind of a screwball mystery when I was viewing it. Had you seen, had either of you seen this before? No, I don't believe I had. Okay, fine. The cloak pecs could be murderers and all that, but the reveal does not feel earned to me. It, it is very ju- sudden. It, it's not justified that they have all those dead bodies in their trunk because they're coming back from being away for a while. It, it, it's the result of test screen audiences and reshoots and them like having to work under a very tight deadline and um, what? I, maybe Dante's heart not being in it, in it anymore. I feel there was like a more earned way to do the ending. Like maybe the cops find the furnace and they're like, why do you have this furnace in your basement that's like maybe they find the remains of the furnace. It survived the explosion, and they find the dead bodies in there. See, I love I love the idea that they were like those. They knew that those meddling kids were on top of them. So I love the idea that they took all the bones with them on their family trip. Like that's yeah. the way to like hide the evidence. Like that's that's very funny to me. And then like being paranoid that they left an iron on the doctors like. Because they didn't find a skull down there, which means they probably did a good job of clearing all the stuff. But the the doctor's like, oh, fuck, they must have found a skull or something down there. And they're acting all cool because they don't want to raise suspicion. So I love that idea that they, they kind of did just like, I don't know, just throw it all in the trunk so they can find it. Like, that's great. We talked about the legality, whether, whether or not they could prosecute on that. I think the fact that it was in the Klopex car might save them because there was no evidence that anybody was breaking into the Klopex car. There was evidence that they were breaking into the 
house. <laughs> so, so like the house, it could have been planted evidence, but the car was there the whole time. And it was like during the scene and cops showed up at the scene and the car was closed. And then all of a sudden it was open. Like they just in a, it's, it's totally pointless, but in a legal sense, I feel like it being in the car could make it more, um, more viable. I'm also, I just watched The Staircase, so my brain is kind of in that space too right now. Yeah, I don't know. But but Dustin, I will say that you're, I was just going to say, Dustin, it does feel like a little bit like, so I, I'll admit, when I watched this movie, I watched this for the first time, essentially. I'd watched about 30 minutes of it when I was younger and then like, for some reason, I got young. In, yeah, like the killer song. When you, yeah. <laughs> That's well, there's killers in this movie as well, the Klopex. Oh, it all, it's all coming together. Life is like one big chain of mystery that all connects. It's a tapestry, you could mm-hmm. say. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> this bit's going nowhere. Uh, so I, I, so I never really saw it to, uh, in its entirety. And I, I really, I really, really liked it. I had no idea about the, that they did reshoots and that Tom Hanks was supposed to die. So he wasn't supposed to die in the explosion. It was supposed to be that. Klopek goes in the ambulance and injects him with poison. That's how he dies. Oh, so they always were murderers. First, there was a version where the Klopeks are innocent. Then there's a version where Klopek goes into the ambulance to kill Tom Hanks and they get away with it. Then there's our final version. But yeah, Tom Hanks always survives the house explosion. I think that ending is too abrupt and doesn't really pay off enough stuff. I I will say that's a very... Remember, so Twilight Zone had a a period of time where it was, whatever, 23 minutes, and then they had, like, 40-minute episodes or something. And a lot of people, myself included, prefer the 20-minute episodes. It was just 20-minute episodes. Yeah. The the 20-minute episodes create a lot of situations... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where where the the bad guy has to just kind of be like yes it's a cookbook like he, he kind of have to he, he has to bring his cookbook into the un meeting to for no reason yes <laughs> weren't my fingers no and not to defend it by saying something else did this i'm not saying what about that but i am saying that it is kind of in keeping with twilight zone to have like an ending that all of a sudden it's like oh but this is a hour and 40 minute movie so I I, yes, I, I feel you need more resolution than that. I think they probably could have improved it in general if it wasn't for the writer's strike. There was some keep, very capable improv throughout, oh, but yeah. still just... And there's a lot of little moments that are improv. So the best comedy moment in the movie is Tom Hanks is fully broken down. The best comedy scene and the best dramatic scene in the movie is Tom Hanks is broken down. He's yelled at Art. He's yelled at everybody because he's like, we... We fucked up. Like we did the, like we ruined these people's lives. And the best thing about the So they came that, to themselves. So they- <laughs> Yes. Yes. So it, the best part about that speech is that he's right. He's a hundred percent right. And that's the movie breaking right there where they're like they we had nothing on them. We were being paranoid and insane. Like we were, we were hunting these people for off of just them being a little weird and them being new people in the neighborhood. And so all of a sudden, all they were the new kid on the block. And um, Aaron, do you know any new kids on the block songs? Uh, yeah. Uh, new kids on the block had a lot of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. <laughs> I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer, just like this movie. Because summer. Thank you. Thank you. That's, um, so that song's called New Kids on the Block by New Kids on the Block. Thank you. 
the new kids on the block uh and tom hanks is freaking the fuck out he throws himself on a gurney in the street and then he realizes there's no paramedics around and then picks up the gurney throws it in the ambulance <laughs> then gets on it himself that was the result yeah, he looks like that. a pouting kid exactly <laughs> he's acting like a kid having a fit yeah, there's <laughs> scenes earlier in the movie where tom hanks is like crushing beer cans because he doesn't want to tell carol how he feels or like he like is not trying he's to take out the carol. whole the whole movie starts with them being them to going no you go to the scary neighbor's house no you go to the scary like i think you guys should watch again through the prism of like these are children the entire movie and the best line in the movie is um carol finally puts her fucking foot down earlier in the movie and she says uh you know like can uh can Rick come out or can Ray come out? Can Ray come out? And like, you know, like kids. And then, she, and then um, she says, I'm not letting Ray out of this house until he resembles the man I married. And then Art says, <laughs> says, we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. As long as you're doing best lines, my favorite is actually Art's line where he says, you've never seen that. I've never seen someone drive their garbage to the can and then beat the hell out of it. <laughs> the best Rick, the best, uh, the best art line actually is it's one of those, or it's um, at the end of the movie, you've forgotten that art has a wife and he just goes, my wife's home. <laughs> art, your house is on fire and your wife's home. My wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite line is the, from uh, the the, spec, the bespectacled garbage man who uh, played a doctor on Star Trek Voyager. Uh, he's also it's Robert Picardo. He's also in all the Joe Robert Dante Picardo. movies. Yeah, he's in all of them. So is Dick Miller, the other guy. Both garbage men are Dante Staples. Anyway, so Ray's come out. I think it's Ray. He's come out and he's looking through the garbage, and Dick Miller asks. Uh, uh, Picardo, help me out with this guy. And Picardo just comes over with more garbage and dumps it up. <laughs> and and Miller says, what are you doing? And Picardo says, you asked me to be helpful. <laughs> you, know, you know what the best part of that gag and, is? And- they, no one ever picks up the garbage. Like, later in the movie, the garbage is still there. Like, so that's, people- that's great because it, it's, 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 um, it's very much playing to the bottle movie idea. It's like in a rope somebody breaks a vase or something or you know in rope somebody eats all the food or something or the one in those kind of like lifeboat style movies somebody does something and then even if it's not highlighted in the shot it affects the scene it affects the room and how people are yeah because anytime they go to that house they drive over the garbage because no one ever picked it up and it's also not again to go back to my my theme uh a lot of times when kids fight about no you pick it up no you pick it up if there's no parent there to make someone pick it up it never gets picked up because kids don't like backing down oh (laughs) or co-workers too (laughs) oh and and robert picardo's later line when they're rooting through the garbage when they've moved on from dumping garbage on the street and now they're climbing into the garbage trucks to look for more garbage he, he tells dick miller the supreme court clearly ruled the garbage <laughs> <laughs> yeah. once it reaches the curb he has a right to know yeah there's a great set of lines in that scene and it ends with dick miller getting frustrated with them tossing the garbage everywhere and he goes i hate cul-de-sacs there's only one way out and the people are kind of weird <laughs> <laughs> like there's that scene is a really like tightly edited a little kind comedy scene with two great character actors that joe dante was like i need a scene for the my guys like i need to have my dick miller and my robert picardo in here 
It's a perfect escalation of oh, now these guys are getting dangerously crazy. <laughs> yes, because the like, garbage man is the, all the garbage man is also like he's not he's not just doing the typical like I just want to do my job, which is like you know one way to play it. He's doing this like Supreme Court rulings. <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah, like an over he's one of those overeducated guys who gets into a blue collar job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you can tell you can tell like it's just not entirely working out. But Dick Miller is tolerating him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The other really great physical gag in this movie is, and I, I don't even know how to describe it if you haven't seen the movie, but when Corey Feldman walks into the room and breaks the plate, oh like my they, god, when they're so in the yes. when they're in the house of the old guy that they think is gone and looking for his toupee, and uh, Art just holds up that plate and <laughs> like we can't disturb a thing, and in with perfect comic timing. Corey Feldman opens the door. It breaks off exactly like if the door was a knife and cut the plate. (laughs) Like in the way the door swoop would do. Like it is amazing and it is so sudden and on the – that's such a great gag. It's a great gag. It's it's perfect comic timing because the angle also has to work perfectly. Like the um the way art is holding that plate and yeah. you it's it, it, the way art is holding that plate, you just think the joke is that art is eating food in the fridge and that is part 1 of the joke. Part 2 of the joke is yeah. what they're subverting is that the door that you didn't even think anybody was behind swings open and smashes the the plate. And that's right when I believe Tom Hanks is saying like yelling at art for eating the food and disturbing the house. Like the timing of of those three sort of mini jokes all comes together in a really great way. I, th- I think it's just a really masterfully done movie on a technical level. And it's it's Dante showing off a little bit. Like there's a lot well, of bits like that. They're in the backyard and Ray's starting to become a little disenchanted with the cause. And they're trying to convince him. And he starts playing fetch with the dog. And then after I think he gets two tosses out and then he realizes that the bone he's fetching is... About three feet long, <laughs> like about the height of a tall adult male. It's but it's not. It's it's too thin to be like a cow bone, but it's too way too long to be anything else, right? Like it can't be a dog. No, no, it's it's human bones. Yes. I, I don't love the cartoony reaction to it. Oh, really? That's personal. <laughs> I, I I do like the screaming. I love that. Uh, the, the, the rapid zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. Oh, that's, I love that. I, I like that. Okay, I'm in the minority there. I like the joke overall, but that part. It, it's so wonderfully sarcastic. It's too sweet for me, it's I guess. It's so sarcastic. <laughs> I also, it's, by the way, very kid reaction to both of them when they like the screaming and like putting your hands up really fast like you're gonna <laughs> Yes. One more kid thing really quick before I, for, uh, before I forget. One weird kid thing. Carol calls out. She says, someone's gonna fall off a roof or set themselves on fire. And then both <laughs> of those things happen in the movie. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. No, I want to get back though to that bone scene because the other thing that's so great about it and like shows how good Dante is at this stuff is that he lets you know for a very long time that there it's a human bone right they oh keep yeah having a conversation yep. and that's a good enough gag right but instead he does this thing where then he's like hey look at the bone you're throwing yeah well it, it's a femur yeah a human femur yeah like none of that is enough <laughs> to, for tom hanks to like understand what art's talking about and then Fi's like well, where did he get a human femur? And that's what he <laughs> like. So, so like the way he builds up tension with the audience, yeah, that, and the then you're like, joke Adam like too. 
Yeah. yeah That's true. I just explained poorly. Yeah, the way that he's able to build that tension, like, oh, my God, as soon as he recognizes it's a femur. And then he does. And it gets – and he gets more and more specific um, with with what it is. And it still doesn't, like – so you're still holding on to the tension of the moment of when he's going to realize it. And then it does the big, like – Almost, almost like a comedic version of a jump scare, which is, I think, very clever. Oh, okay. Yeah. The one other big component that I think we need to talk about is that this is not just a parody of suburbia in the 80s. This is a parody of satanic panic in the 80s as well, because one of the big things that they're doing is having cloaks and these weird rituals and stuff like that and kind of joking about how people saw uh you know these these satan cults everywhere um and that's kind of uh illustrated by uh the most like dante scene the most dante-ish what do you call it Dan- dante-ish scene dantean dantean trademark yeah. dante uh is the is the dream sequence where he's like on the giant barbecue with all <laughs> it's such it's a great sequence but um the movie eventually kind of loses the satanic panic um thread or doesn't really pursue it that much but it does a really good job of of underlining like oh yeah everything is a satanic cult if you if it seems even slightly different than what you're used to and art is dressed as skip and he's like making jokes before he goes to attack uh, ray and walter is standing there with a uh an axe in his head and he's holding up queenie who has a smaller axe in her head. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love it Fun, fun uh, note, Queenie would go on to be precious in Silence of Lambs. Yes. Oh. Yes. That's so funny. Because the, t- the timing <laughs> kind of the timing kind of makes sense, too. Like, dogs live about, you know, 10, 15 years, depending on their size. Like, that totally checks out. I love that. And also, Satanic Panic thing outside that scene real quick. Um, when they go and knock on their door, the address is 669. And then they knock on the door. <laughs> the nine swivels upside down and make, of course, 666. The Beast kind of remind you of, like, Amityville Horror yeah. or Candy. Well, not Candyman, because I don't think that was out yet. But it, it does feel like something that would be in an Omen movie or something like that. Yeah, where the, the their, uh, Satan is actually like a lord of, of flies and pestilence. Um, and so, of course, Satan would have it's the same have command of all bugs, right? But you have to have bees so that it looks like a scene of two cartoon characters chase, flailing around as they're chased <laughs> by insects. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. Mark comes to help and then gets Dingus Love in the host. Like, no, he doesn't get tangled up. He like pulls oh. it to. He reaches the end and he does a backflip kind ah, of. Gotcha. God, it's it's really great how it, it does play with a lot of different things to make you both laugh at uh, the character's paranoia, but also be like kind of take you along for the ride. It manages that that twin act um, where you're like, yes, they're paranoid. Yes, they're crazy. But also, are they paranoid? Are they crazy? I was really like the Morricone song when they approached the house. Yeah. From, yeah. <laughs> from My Name is Nobody. Yeah. Yeah, it's from My Name is Nobody. I, I kept thinking it sounded like the patent theme and I felt... Uh, it well, patents pressed. in different scenes. They do use the patent theme at one point because Jerry Goldsmith did the score um, and he did yep. the score also for Patton. I've watched Patton too many times because I kept wanting them to just keep playing out the patent theme. It's great. <laughs> it is a great fucking theme. Did it not... Did you uh, not have rewind? 
Is that what that is? <laughs> no, no, no. I want to hear the rest of the oh. song. It has. You have to play the rest of the song. That's how I'm so conditioned by <laughs> stimulus. Tom Hanks is also really in Woody from Toy Story mode. Um, where he's like, I, I, I remember reading an interview when he did uh, the Woody voice, and they like hired him and were like, I've never seen this movie, but like, you need to be. Tom Hanks in the scene where you're super frustrated with like Hooch from Turner and Hooch, which is this movie too, where he's like, where he's kind of like yelling and manic and like, ah, ah, like that. And like when you, he was the fun Jim Carrey, he the was Jim Carrey I, who could act <laughs> or, or okay. Jim Carrey who could rein it in enough to act. And who also never said some things about vaccines that uh, were awful. Uh, I will say... Uh, <laughs> well, not 80s, that we heard. 80s Tom Hanks is my favorite Tom Hanks. He... 90s Tom Hanks are... So, I, my, I, have, I have a theory that there's essentially uh, three stages of, like, Tom Hanks. Um, maybe it's, it's, it's so obvious it's probably not even my theory i may have even heard it somewhere uh but like you basically have like all of his comedy stuff in the 80s that goes to like whenever he's in philadelphia and then you have when he does his like supporting turn and catch me as you can where he starts playing more adult so he almost has like comedic and crazy tom hanks like super serious uh biggest star in the world tom hanks and like trying to find his footing hit and miss tom hank in like the third stage um but even though I would say that, like, probably the middle stage has, like, most of my favorite Tom Hanks movies, the the Tom Hanks I love the most is the, like, the big, the Joe versus the Volcano, the Burbs Tom Hanks. It's just, he's just so affable and fun and, like, charming. And he, you know, he was never, like, the killer line person, but he just was able to heighten any any moment that you were in and you also wanted to spend time around him um which which worked very well for when he was playing you know more serious roles because you, you know you want to see jim level state saved and you want forrest gump to i don't know fuck that girl from his childhood <laughs> <laughs> minimizing it's, it's box humor of chocolates is what a, yeah who wants to fuck that box of chocolates <laughs> yeah but yeah, so I, I, I really like this stage of Tom Hanks' career, and it kind of sucks that he like barely ever returned to this after Philadelphia. Or if he did yeah, at all. The closest he got to going back to zany comedy was doing uh, The Lady Killers, and that was a horrific bomb. It was terrible. And then I think after that, he was like, maybe I do sort of like light jokey comedy from now on. I don't go full on back to zany because I, I don't know if I can do that anymore. He's not really zany in Lady Killers. He's like ultra super pretentious to the point where it's like insufferable. And I know that's intentional, but it's not entertaining either. It's a terrible movie. I guess the only one where he gets to do this is the Toy Story movies. Like I'm looking at is there's like barely anything that's a comedy Unless you, I don't know, well, I haven't seen Larry Crown, but he's a leading man. It is weird though, like Jim Carrey is a really great example because Jim Carrey would go into serious mode and then he'd like try to go back to his Jim Carrey manic days with like Fun and Dick and Jane after like the number 23. And like you go through his filmography like we did when we talked about uh, Batman Forever and like he has all these like returns to what he's really good at after he like steps away from it. And looking at Tom Hanks like career post um philadelphia and sleepless in seattle he the only two things 
where he is playing uh, like a true comedic role. Like he's like that thing you do is a very funny movie are Larry Crown and the terminal. And neither of those are this, and not, I know it's bad, but neither of those are like the type of character that, that Tom Hanks played for his first 10 years of movie. So it is very, I'm kind of surprised that even now in 2018, that no one has ever tried to make like, the Tom Hanks of the 80s and early 90s movie again. Like, have him try to return to that level of performance. So, uh, Dustin, uh, Adam, do you want to kind of give us your final thoughts on this movie? Um, what you kind of thought of it? And then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go through some final scenes. Overall, enjoyed it and would recommend it to people. It, the highs do hit really well. So, even if there's the valleys where... It isn't quite as interesting or you aren't laughing necessarily. It's kind of worth the wait to get to the next. It's well-crafted overall, and it should be checked out if you haven't seen it. Awesome. I stand by my belief that, yes, it's a hilarious movie. Yes, I think most people will like it. I still don't like that compromise in the end. Uh, or at least I don't like how it was done in the end. Doesn't seem so annoyed that it's like enjoyable for people. <laughs> yes, it's good. Yes, I guess it's like a delightful it. comic romp. Oh, you assholes! And you're in liking things that I also agree are good. Well, I don't like the message it sends. I just I don't I I think honestly I know I, you don't think it. I know you don't feel people will get invested in the message because uh, the tone is otherwise light enough and it harkens to a different kind of comedy but i think if you watch it at an impressionable age maybe people want to drive this message from it any way if they are so inclined to view this as an endorsement of paranoia but i just don't want to see that done that's fair it was about halfway through the movie that i realized what he was doing and it made me want to rewatch it again from the beginning because even now is like I, we were thinking of some of the ways that they are like children we kept thinking of examples that i didn't start thinking of when I first kind of put that uh, prism to to view this movie together. So just very briefly, the very first thing he does is throw his coffee at the paper boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No. And I bet we'd find it throughout it because it, the movie underlines it and circles it at one point that, that scene with Carrie Fisher, Carol, who's like, he can't come up and play. Until he decides to be a better boy, like, like if you if you missed all the stuff beforehand, like that's like oh they're ch- children and the way that um that uh, Rumsfeld and Art react. Come on, we need him. Like, it's, why do they need him? What like special skill does he because bring? Because he's the leader of the group, the friend group. Like, oh, they have to drag him along. But, but that is a very kid thing too. Yeah, like, I, I, like I, Art, I get that. Art and Rumsfeld aren't friends. They're both friends with Tom Hanks. So, like, they can't hang out together because that's not how the friendship dynamic works. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I wasn't I was saying that's a flaw in the movie. It's just a joke that just occurred to me. <laughs> it's true, though. Like, but that, I think that's... Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, that's like the... I think that's the joke in Explorers, too. There's a point where, like, everyone's just friends with Ethan Hawke, but the other kids aren't really all that... Uh, friends, been a while since I've seen Explorers, but this is this is basically like he recast the same people from Explorers as a, um, adults 
in some ways. But yeah, so I really loved it. And I'm actually – I'm looking forward to watching it again in the near future so I can catch all those moments because it's a very – Again, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier. I think one one of the reasons I love Joe Dante so much is that he's very good at giving you something super obvious in its charms that is easy to like or love, at least for me and a lot of people that really like Joe Dante movies. And then, he, like I said, a lot of his like themes can be so subtle because the other stuff is him like banging a gong looney tune style in your face that you're like oh wait is this what he was doing with it which it which i think is why gremlins 2 is like the more fondly remembered gremlins movie than gremlins 1 because gremlins 1 i actually just rewatched it the other night is for the most part a super like there isn't much on underneath there's a little bit about like uh, suburbia and the, the myth of the fifties and some of that stuff, but it's it's not like as obvious as the like Gremlins two, where everyone was super confused as to this isn't a sequel to Gremlins, and it's um you know it's like well I'm gonna make a sequel that's only about how like that's a nitpicker's guide to the first movie, and then I'm gonna throw everything else at it. So that one kind of Gremlins, I feel like, is kind of a movie that people are like, oh yeah, I like Gremlins, and then people obsess over Gremlins too because it took a long time for Gremlins two and what it was doing to kind of sink in culturally. And I feel like that's the case for so many of Joe Dante's movies. You can watch it and you can enjoy it and you can just have the very obvious uh, energy that's in your face. And then when you sit and think about it, you're like, oh, wait a sec. Is that what he's doing? And that was very much the birth for me. It was like a fun, weird, paranoid, suburbanite movie. And then I realized, oh, he's doing the kid movie with the adults. And then it became even more enjoyable to realize how much he was doing that. Um, and I don't think you need to to get that reading or, or that to click for you to enjoy the movie. But again, Joe Dante a lot of times has another layer that his movies operate under that can adds a level of enjoyment. The first layer of enjoyment is, is it as a comedy and it's an yeah. extremely funny comedy. Like even people that don't really like it, think it's pretty funny. Hint, hint. Um, and, and in that level, it's kind of awesome that there is more under the surface and there is more to get into. So I identified with Ray a lot in this movie. And because of that, it really took me on a journey where even as someone who's seen the movie a bunch of times, it took me on a journey where I was like really on Ray's team for a little bit. And then as the movie nears its end, you're like, because I knew that the Klopaks were murders. <laughs> but then as the movie goes on, I'm like, Oh, Ray, you're not going about this in the right way. Like, I'm almost like coaching him. I'm like, Ray, you are, you're losing it, buddy. And then Tom Hanks has this big speech in the end where he's like, they're not insane. We're the insane ones. Um, And then he's like, take me to the hospital. I'm sick. Like, that stuff is like really identifiable to me. Um, And it helped bring me into the movie. And it, it, it also helped me kind of understand the movie as this you're going on this journey with these madmen, and just because the end of the movie means that they were right doesn't mean that they were right and i love that about the movie there's a lot of shit going on under the surface and it's funny the whole time so yeah i unfortunately i identified with the main character of this movie uh and i too had to sort of condemn myself by the end i, I get it too though because like i 
recently had a day off that I had all the stuff I had to do, but then I got all that stuff done quicker. And like, there was nothing worse than like, like at 7 a.m. on my day off that I could do whatever I want. I felt really good. And then by 9 a.m., once my normal like work shift would start, I was like, well, now it's just going to go quick from here. What do I even fit in? What's the point? Like, do I nap? Do I watch it? Like that kind of like pressure of free time. Or a yeah. pressure of a break is like a real thing that I think a lot of people go through because you're trying to use it to the best of your ability, which kind of negates the break part of it. Um, and then you 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 can it's the old joke about like um, wh- what do you wa- what what should I watch tonight or should I do my normal thing where I scroll through Netflix options for an hour and then realize I don't have time to watch a movie and then just go to bed. Free time is tough for people to figure out and people with enough free time and in this case, not rich, but like people with money and a a bit of entitlement about their neighborhood uh, can completely destroy the neighborhood with their free time Um, and all in the service of a better goal. So, um, yeah, guys, thank you so much for doing the burbs with us. Uh, it was a really fun episode. All right. Thank you for le- having us on. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, you're on, welcome. Thank you fun. for thanking us. Uh, what do you guys have to when Also, you'll be back on next month, so we're really excited about that. Uh, we haven't revealed what our August uh, slate is, but um, I bet we'll probably be recording in the next couple weeks here. Uh, and I'm very excited about because I know – I'm not going to say what it is, but it's a movie I love – Dustin Adam, I believe it's a movie that you guys Oh, love. it is my f- favorite movie. And Peter's never seen it, so... What do you guys have to uh, promote? Tonight, we would like to promote Not Meant to Know. It's a novel about a member of a cult who's taken an apprentice under his wing so that he can perform dangerous rituals. What he's going to teach her could change the world. What he's keeping from her, that could destroy it. It's available on Amazon. Buy it! You know who would make a very good John Goodman in matinee, I feel like, it would be Dustin Koski. Because he's <laughs> I you got to say sound, showman. I cannot energy. do a John Goodman voice. No, just I think just your general energy of selling stuff is I think very heavy. I mean it as a compliment. So yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. Next week we have a uh, Rock and Roll High School. The hotly debated is this a Joe Dante movie or not? We're taking the firm stance that, sure, we want to talk about Rock and Roll High School. So, yes, it is. It's enough for us to want to talk about it. Um, and then we're ending – the only way you can end Joe Dante Summer is the movie that uh, has now been referenced in two out of the four Dante uh, episodes. Guaranteed will get uh, mentioned uh, next week as well. And that is Gremlins 2, the new batch with Hayden Bythway. So, we're very excited to, to round off this month. And then – I just want to say um... – Buy my book. I just want to say... Okay, buy our book. Buy the Koski's book. And the Koski's? Thank you. Aaron, hey, Aaron, Aaron. Yeah. Aaron, What's up? Do you think that the... Do you think that the... Hold on. They're trying to interject. Should we let them? <laughs> do you think that the Koski's are kind of kind of weird? Like, I, did you hear the noises coming out of their basement? Yeah, I saw them uh, last night. I, we, you know, because we've moved into the left house. <laughs> <laughs> the last one on the left. Oh. They were they were burying stuff in the backyard, but when we checked, it was first drafts of their novels. <laughs> Adam hasn't got a chance to sing in this episode, and I feel like Dustin's been stepping on a lot of Adam's. <laughs> I wonder if Adam has a song to sing. Adam, what you, what what does your heart say right now? I am a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great guided by voices cover. That was a perfect.
folks. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.